Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip a podcast by Black professionals for Black professionals about the political decision-making that affects us, our communities, and our allies. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and Black issues on a regular basis. And if you support our work to keep you informed, you know what to do. Subscribe. Today, we're proud to welcome Friends of the Drip, Ontario MPs Ariel Kayabaga and Michael Coteau back to the pod in their upgraded capacities as chair and sitting members of the Federal Liberal Black Caucus, respectively. When they last joined us in 2021, Ariel was a London City Councillor and Michael was the MPP for Don Valley West. And those were two of our best episodes today, by the way. Both of them chose to run in the 2021 federal election and won. Now, the two political leaders play a key role in the federal government by ensuring that the cabinet takes the needs of the Black community into account in all of its planning. Crucial work within a democratic society as vast and diverse as Canada's. And today, they're giving us an update on what's in Budget 2023 for the Black community and a whole lot more. Ariel, Michael, what is going on, you two? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Things are good. Ariel, do you want to start first and maybe I'll follow up if that's okay? Sure. Um, Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Patience and Curtis, for having us again. This is my second time on the podcast, the Drip Podcast. Uh, And as uh, Patience put it well, we are friends of the podcast. So we're very excited to be um, chatting with you again about, you know, some of the things that we spend practically all of our time doing and mm-hmm. uh, that is serving Canadians and especially in this moment as we talk about budget 2023 what this means for all Canadians and what this means for black Canadians um, and I think last time we chatted I was a city councillor and you mentioned I'm now a member of parliament mm-hmm. for London West shout out to all the folks from London West who are listening um, and yeah just excited to be here with my colleague and friend Michael Coteau. Yeah, and uh, I want to say thank you so much for, uh, you know, for having me and uh, both of us on today to talk about, you know, issues that are relevant to the Black community and to all Canadians. And, uh, you know, I remember being on the podcast uh, quite some time ago, and it was, uh, you know, it was just, it was a great experience. And I just want to say, you know, thank you for the work you're doing, because um, we need uh, forums like this where people can come on and talk about issues that, you know, that relate to Black Canadians um, and uh, share you know, share information. It's something that's so needed. So I just want to thank both of you for the work you're doing for the community. But we Absolutely. are thankful for you as well. You yeah. give us good things to talk about. <laughs> and we've got plenty to discuss, in fact. So why don't we jump right in? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Perfect. So to kick us off, Let's discuss the main topic of the day, budget 2023, right? 
It was a challenging one to put together under the context of a possible looming recession and high inflation, so it'd be hard to please everyone, for sure. Still, at $497 billion, it's got some stuff in there worth discussing, from healthcare to climate change to dental care and more. There's specifically some items geared toward the Black community in there, too. So what are either of you most proud of in this budget? Feel free to break down what you like most, you know, for the Black community, what you like for Canadians at large, for your writing, anything that applies. And then I'd also like you to consider what you think could be improved about the budget. For example, there, there wasn't much in there for housing. Go ahead. Personally, I think that you really set this conversation right by talking about the kind of financial uh, situation that our country finds itself in, actually the world finds itself in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so it's it's really important to put that into context uh, mm-hmm. to sort of understand where we are right now. And some of the things that we've done, you know, as a government to support Canadians, um, there are so many countries that, you know, really do envy the kind of support that we gave to business owners, to Mm -hmm. uh, renters, to everyone, um, to make sure that they get through that period of of, of the pandemic where the world kind of stopped and we really had to scramble to figure out how to continue to keep this country moving forward. But this budget is really a budget um, that is... um, tailored towards affordability because things have gotten so expensive post um, this COVID slash uh, Russia and Ukraine crisis and everything else that we're experiencing in the world right now. But some of the things that I find really interesting for me is the grocery rebate. And this speaks to all Canadians, including Black Canadians as well. Uh, it's It's a grocery rebate to help Uh, 11 million low and modest income Canadians, up to an extra 467 per family, 234 uh, per single people. This is, this goes a long way, right? It Mm -hmm. helps Canadians. Uh, We do hear quite often how uh, their groceries are, are one of the biggest concerns they have. And I'm sure Michael can feel the same way as parents. We, we see it, especially if you have teenagers or, you know, you're growing, growing kids, you know that the mm-hmm. groceries are becoming a huge conversations amongst Canadians. And I think this rebate really goes to respond to, to a concern that a lot of Canadians have. I do like the healthcare um, investments that we made, $198 uh, billion uh, re- to reduce backlogs, to expand access to family health services, to ensure that provinces and territories can provide high quality and timely health care for Canadians, and also to protect our Health Care Act to make sure that it does not get privatized. And the other thing I'll say is also the student loan, right? The student loan, um, we're removing student loans. Um interest loans and it's you know when you say interest loans not everybody can understand that unless they've paid student loans mm-hmm. but um sometimes <laughs> i like to just say it as you know sort of like a student debt relief right that we're providing student debt relief and that's really important to put it in that context because the student interests really do cause a lot of people to 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 go into high payments and 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 stop them from even saving money to be able to own homes so mm-hmm. this is going to give them a wiggle room to sort of save extra money so that they can, you know, uh, reach that $40,000 that's non-taxable and be able to purchase their first home. Um, I'll let Michael add into some other things that he finds really exciting. But these are, you know, some top three that I can come up with right now that mm-hmm. I find really exciting in this budget and that I personally have been chatting with with folks in London West. Yeah, and I, I would agree with everything that Ariel has said. Um, this budget was, uh, without a question, a budget around uh, affordability. Um 
making lives easier for Canadians. Um, we know, like, if you, you know, if you go out to London, you go to Toronto, you go anywhere across the country, people are saying the same thing that life's, you know, becoming a little bit, uh, well, a lot more challenging. Uh, you know, the cost of living uh, because of inflation, uh, just uh, accessibility to, uh, you know, to things coming through the supply chain. There's so many pieces that have just driven up the cost of, uh, of living. And um, I think governments, you know, have a responsibility to look for any uh, mechanism possible to uh, make life easier for people um, that they're, they're elected to serve. So I, you know, I, the, the pieces that Ariel's mentioned around, uh, you know, student loans to, uh, you know, to the investments in childcare, which is just, you know, just an, an incredible investment into supporting families to uh, a $500 subsidy, which came from the fall economic statement and the dental care, uh, the dental care supplement for, uh, for young people. All of these things are there to really just figure out how to better support people as they go, you know, as we as Canadians go through this turbulence. Um, but I was, I was especially proud that the government, um, you know, especially during a challenging budget, uh, because budgets are hard, you know, uh, it's not like there's a whole bunch of new money coming in. You've got to kind of, you know, work on, you know, adjusting things. And there's so much pressure, especially with inflation at such, uh, you know, at such a, a higher rate than usual, uh, things are more expensive. The cost of government is more expensive. So, uh, the fact that the government could, you know, when it comes to the black community, invest uh, $45 million into uh, a mental health fund for public servants, you know, and, and create a dedicated career development program uh, specifically for the black community or, you know, uh, reinvest the, the $25 million into supporting uh, black Canadian communities initiatives. And, you know, we have the endowment and, and all of these great initiatives that have come forward some over the years. The fact that, you know, they're here still, the fact that uh, we're building on them, uh, the fact that, you know, and many governments create things and, you know, because it may be the flavor of the month and then a few years later, you know, they're moving on to something else. This government's dedicated to working with black Canadians to look for ways to support them economically, socially, all different ways possible to make sure that, you know, the community itself is, uh, is accessing resources they deserve from government. So I'm proud of that affordability piece, but not losing sight of other pieces like the investments into the black community as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I hear that. I found it interesting that you both found the grocery top up to be the most beneficial. And I'm sure that there's benefit for many, but I'm also hearing and seeing that, you know, for many people, it's kind of too little, too late. Uh, again, though, we, I think all of us on this uh, call, we all appreciate the fact that we can't make our, you know, inflationary problems worse. I'm wondering if you think that the, you know, the dental care plan uh, will have more overall substantive benefit to Canadians than the grocery top up, for example. I'll, I'll jump in really quick. Uh, just, uh, you know, the too little too late. I don't think it really applies because it's not like, you know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden the government just decided to do something. This is mm -hmm. part of a long, you know, a long, uh, I would say, um, uh, strategy over the last, not just six months or a year, but uh, over the last few years, starting for, mm -hmm. you know, from child, uh, you know, investing in children and, you know, to investing into education, to investing into COVID relief, uh, putting mm -hmm. in childcare, which, you know, can save a family, you know, if they have a, a kid in childcare, you can save I believe the number's around $10,000 a year, you know, the interest yep. rate, like this yep. is, 
this is not just, you know, here's $500 to help you with your groceries. This is a, a, a part of a large, elaborate package of different services uh, offered to Canadians to help stabilize, you know, their financial situation to allow them mm -hmm. to continue to, to go forward so they can do things like raise a family, which is the best economic investment we can make. Or, you know, think about yep. going back, you know, and upgrading, going to school or, you know, staying in that job you love so you can build, you know, a career path. These are the things that are important to Canadians. And this government, make no mistake, this government was there for Canadians during COVID and it's there for Canadians during these, you know, these challenging economic times as well. I hear that. Absolutely. And I, if I could add a little bit on that, I absolutely agree with my colleague um, on this, because one thing that you have to maybe um, for for the sake of the listeners um, mm -hmm. so that nobody feels that we're gaslighting them because we're not mm -hmm. gaslighting anybody. Mm -hmm. It's important to really put context into everything so that people understand what we're talking about. We're talking about going through a pandemic. OK, we're talking about going through a unexpected crisis between two countries that are vital into the way we we do business across the world, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where our farmers get their fertilizer from and just different things, right? Mm -hmm. And then we're talking about regular recession that happens every every couple of years, right? So yeah, we're all yeah. we're in a boiling um I would kind say of a perfect storm. Right, a perfect storm for mm -hmm. every single financial situation. And I do have to agree with Michael that our government has done everything to be there for Canadians. And and you can watch um where we are financially in terms of uh the G7. We are seeing an economic growth from last year to now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really because the government stepped up and supported Canadians. Obviously, mm -hmm. governments cannot solve every single issue. Um, there are some other sectors that have to play part. But I can tell you that this government has done everything in its power to not only balance this budget, to keep our country from falling into a similar situation than some other countries. I'm not going to mention any names, but um, <laughs> I also think that it's important to recognize that um, Today, Canadians are better off because of the support that this government gave during the pandemic, because we continue to invest in in things like the child tax benefit, right, which has lifted over 400,000 uh, families out of poverty and continues, right? And so there are so many avenues that we are using to continue to be there for Canadians instead of just closing every well and saying, well, fisc fiscal responsibility without really, there's no fiscal responsibility without people. You need to invest and support Canadians to make sure that you can secure a better future. And, and, and Michael mentioned the child care agreement that we made across the country. It's not just a feminist policy, but it's, it's also a huge economic policy. Correct. And we're seeing the impact of it. And that also leaves, again, wiggle room for people to do other things, to have extra money in their pockets, to be able to purchase groceries. We're investing in students now to make sure that also students have wiggle rooms in their in their budgets to be to make sure that they can have homes and they can they can raise families. Like I think it, it's I understand the frustration because we are in a perfect storm, not just in Canada, but globally all over. But I also think it's important to recognize that we do have responsible governments that are making decisions that prioritize and protect Canadians in our future altogether. 
Yep, so yep. you're 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 talking right. This is a perfect segue into my next question, um, because what you're saying is true, right? But also, more people care about the deficit now than they did two years ago, and it's now a majority, fifty six percent, according to Nana's polling. Uh, and in the middle of the pandemic, when Canadians were more supportive of, you know, going into a deficit to fund government programs, um, that was one of the reasons why your government was elected. Now, it seems like, like the tides are turning or, or have turned, where 56% are saying balancing the budget to ease their tax burden is more important to them as opposed to running a deficit to invested programs. So that's a 10-point increase compared with two years ago. And at the same time, kind of people want better hospital systems and better health care. So how do you envision your government at least trying to address the realities of people wanting less spending, yet more services between now and 2025? Yeah, no, I, I think, I think um, if you asked anyone, you know, even how they would run their home, would they like to be less in debt and get more, you know, stuff in their home? They would say, obviously, yes. Obviously it's the same thing that. with government, right? You know, people don't want the debt to increase, but at the same time, uh, people, um, the expectation for services sometimes do grow, especially, you know, uh, in areas like healthcare and education. When you look at like healthcare and education, and this may be a little bit more provincial, but there are transfers that do go over to healthcare without a question. Um, you know, sure. these are areas that grow at two, three, four percent naturally without, you know, without doing anything. You know, that's just to maintain right. the system based on collective agreements and and um, and uh, and natural inflation rates. So the cost of mm -hmm. government continuously increases even without the increase of services. But here you have a government that just launched. Now I, I want you to think about this for a second. You know, in our mm -hmm. lifetime. And, you know, I'm, I'm older than everyone here, but in, in my <laughs> lifetime, I have never heard of a project as grand as, you know, universal childcare. You know, like the big mm -hmm. things that we have in this country, you know, universal healthcare, um, universal uh, access to uh, education, you know, our post-secondary systems. These were big ideas at one point. But the fact that we've launched in a time where we're going through some of the biggest challenges as a country and and around the world, we've launched a national program to provide $10 a day childcare is astonishing. People, I don't think people, you know, understand how big and significant this is. So yes, we have a government that is, uh, you know, the debt has increased, but the services have increased. Well, what do we get for that? Well, we're investing into people. Um, we're investing into infrastructure. You know, I read, uh, I was reading today, um, and it was an old report that even like the city of Toronto, where I'm from, you know, the fact mm -hmm. the traffic costs, you know, it costs uh, Toronto about $5 billion in lost. Uh, so congestion Ooh. cost us $5 billion in lost productivity per year. So by investing into oh, infrastructure, yeah. invest into yeah. infrastructure, invest into education, invest into healthcare. If I can keep, if I, if I can, as a government, keep people healthier, it actually costs government less. So I have no problem making those investments and, and still building on the economy. So, you know, revenues because of productivity come back in so you can invest more. So I'm very satisfied with where we are. We have to be very conscious of, you know, how government builds debt, but Canada, you have mm -hmm. to remember has 
you know, uh, the uh, when you put the the jet to, um, the uh, debt to GDP, debt to GDP ratio. we're the lowest in the in the G20. You know, our economy is the Correct. best in the G20. Um, we have a lot of a lot of things going on for us, and I think as Canadians, uh, once we look at the big numbers and not just listen to the rhetoric that rhetoric that may come mm-hmm. out of you know from the conservatives, um, but when you look at the big numbers and you do the comparators across the uh, across the G20, we're in very good shape. So just to wrap up what we were just kind of touching on. So if we look at that same Nanus poll, we've got making, if we look at the priorities of Canadians, and this was maybe a couple of weeks ago that this poll came out, number one was making the healthcare system stronger. That was a clear favorite with 49% ranking at first, and then another 24% ranking at second. So that speaks to what the both of you were just talking about. There's in second place, reducing the deficit. Uh, where 19% of respondents thought that that was the most important thing, then was fighting climate change, then was investing in infrastructure and creating jobs, which again speaks to the overall flavor of what people are feeling right now. So I guess from from my end, you know, would it be wise to take a step back and say, okay, where are we spending now and how can we reorient at least for a year or two to focus on the things I just mentioned. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's what the government is doing right now. They're already doing that, Curtis. Um, mm-hmm. I think this budget is focused on, um, you know, yes, affordability and making sure that we Canadians can afford life in this country. Um, but we're also creating more jobs. Um, we're bringing uh, new jobs, especially in the southwestern Ontario region for London. I know that there's going to be a creation of massive creation of jobs because we're bringing um, Volkswagen. We're bringing uh, we're we're attracting um, you know jobs into the region. And this budget also does focus on on jobs. But if I if I can go back to you know what I wanted to say about you know some of the the records that we have right now, we have eight, uh, 830,000 more Canadians that are employed than before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Right. That's, that's a big deal. And mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's a conversation that we're not talking about because we are focused on, you know, uh, some of the quick messaging that, you know, uh, Poiliev is probably putting online. Uh, but it's really important to put things in context 830,000 unemployed Canadians than before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's a record high, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have a Canada-wide system of, you know, the affordable learning uh, childcare, which has now gone in Ontario. I'm going to speak for Ontario because we're Ontario MPs, um, Mm -hmm. has gone down to 50%, creating more room for people to be able to save money to buy homes. And those people are going to work, right? So our workforce continues to grow. Indeed. Right? So it's important to talk about the growth that we're seeing and comparing it to before the pandemic as well so that we can put things into context for Canadians. And I don't think that, you know, this budget as mean and lean it was, although it still supported Canadians, I think it's important to also know that these are the things that the government is planning for. We wouldn't be having this conversation if the government did not foresee um, how to continue to grow our economy. But before we get there, we are coming out. We're not even out yet. We're coming out of a perfect storm. It's important that we're there for Canadians. Indeed. And you know what else, um, Curtis? When um, the, 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 the jobs that are going into southwestern Ontario, the Volkswagen plant, for example, do you know who, who was against it? 
Poilievre. Yeah, I know who was. Are we talking about that enough? We should be I don't think so. And I think we need to talk about the things that this opposition is doing to prevent the well-being of Canadians. So what would they do if they were actually in government? Imagine blocking a plant that's going to create jobs, that's going to create families, that's going to, you know, bring opportunities for people to buy more housing, even in the southwest in Ontario. Right. Do does people who live in that region know that he was against it? I think they need to know. They deserve to know. They absolutely do. They do now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jumping to the center of Canada, I mean, uh, Toronto, where transit is a hot, holy pile of trash. Acting Mayor Jennifer McKelvey has been publicly warning that service cuts and infrastructure cuts are coming without investments from your government. She says if your government doesn't come up with the cash, Toronto will have to dip into its rainy day fund to pay for current service levels and projects, and doing so would screw us in 2024, since road repairs and other infrastructure repairs would stop. It also means that TTC service levels would be cut even further than the current 30% cut they have already experienced, which is why it's in the terrible state it's in now. So... To be clear, I know Minister Freeland has said Toronto should ask Premier Ford for the loot, and that's definitely a reasonable ask. But considering the looming strike by the Federal Public Service that may kick off on Wednesday, and Toronto's importance to liberal electoral success, do you think Minister Freeland is taking the right approach here? I'll let Michael answer that question. Yeah, you don't want to answer the Toronto questions, eh? No. (laughs) I'm a stick to Southwestern Ontario, where I know best. Fair enough. Fair deal. Um, Well, let's let's start by by just talking about the relationship between the federal government and the city of Toronto. We know the city of Toronto is, um, you know, there is no city like it uh, in Canada. It, it, let's be honest, it's 20% of the GDP of the entire country. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I, I was actually at the city uh, today, I did an announcement with the uh, deputy mayor and some councillors, uh, a bunch right. of councillors, um, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, like it is, the, I think, the fourth largest city in, uh, in uh, North America, I believe. Um, it has 252 cranes currently in operation, mm-hmm. and that's been number that's one record. for the last decade. And and do you know yeah. what the second city is with the highest crane? It's Los Angeles at 52. Mm-hmm. So Toronto is on fire. It is moving. Things are happening in that city. 
The problem with Toronto right now is that it doesn't fit into a traditional category of a regular Canadian city because of its growth. It's just, it's grown so much. Um, and don't get me wrong. There are some big cities in, in this, you know, we're in Ottawa now. There's, you know, cities, uh, you know, Calgary. But I mean, Toronto is just growing so quickly. And the current, the current funding model doesn't really allow it to do what it needs to do to, to get things done, to keep up with that growth. So mm-hmm. I will say that, right? I've always said this. I've said this for years. I've said this as a provincial uh, minister. I've said this as, uh, as a federal uh, member. Uh, Toronto needs mm-hmm. a new deal. Toronto needs, mm-hmm. we need to put in place a new approach to the way um, Toronto operates. I've always talked about Toronto becoming a chartered city with more power. Um, to right. allow it to uh, to really have the tools necessary to do what it, it, it needs to do. Now, having said all that, the federal government has been a good partner with the city of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, you know, of investment. I think the the transit uh, infrastructure investment, uh, you know, over the last uh, decade is uh, is close to uh, is close to ten billion dollars. Um, the problem is you make the investments into infrastructure. There's a big challenge with operational. Now, traditionally, um, you know, provincial governments have taken on that role. They've taken on the role mm-hmm. to support the, you know, the cities. That's been their job. And um, unfortunately, they now have a partner at, uh, in the province that is not doing what they're supposed to do during COVID. You know, I think the federal government has put every, you know, uh, nine out of ten dollars was, you That's know, right. for any type of relief came from the federal government. And, uh, mm-hmm. and those years, you know, Ford was declaring uh, surpluses. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we need to sit down like mature people between the city, the federal government and the province and really think of how this relationship could be more predictable, where there's more st- to ensure more stability and more accountability because the current system, to be fair to Toronto, is not working. Now, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be based on this conversation that the deputy mayor is having right now with the government saying Mm -hmm. that they need money. I'm talking about a long-term strategy uh, to change the trajectory and just create more accountability uh, and more stability when it comes to funding. The current system is broken. Speaking of cities, uh, what did either of you, maybe I'll jump to you, Ariel, in particular. What did you make of uh, PP's comments about woke liberalism being responsible for the waves of crime and violence we see across Canada cities, <laughs> I, I I don't even know if I should fully comment what I think because um, I am a member of Parliament and I'm held <laughs> accountable for the things that I say. Um, I do want you to realize that as as I'm a black woman in politics, mm-hmm. um, when people throw out. Um, signaling words, I'm fully aware of what those mean. Mm. And I think people need to know what people mean when they throw out the word like wokeism, right? Mm. And the the damage that it does to, to people. Um, and who exactly is being targeted behind a blanket statement such as liberal wokeism? And um, I think we have to be careful in the way we use our words. 
And I think we have to be aware that they do have a strong impact. I speak as a member of parliament for an area that has seen um, a death of, you know, three generations of one family in one day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to be careful how we use the platforms that we have. Yeah. To be careful not to incite violence in the hearts of people. To be careful not to, you know, I, I hear him say, Canada's broken, Canada's broken, Canada's broken. It's like he's trying to convince people that they live in a bad country, and that is absolutely not true. Well, I, I don't and think he's trying to convince people. gaslighting as well, right? He is trying to convince people. He's trying to, you know, <laughs> there's power in repetition, right? If you repeat something long enough, it'll become true to you and possibly to the people who are lending you their ears. Yeah. Um, so... I do fear that there is a group of Canadians that are being misinformed uh-huh. and misled to believe things that are not true. But you know who else is being hurt in the process is everyone else who's working so hard to keep this country together. This is the frontline workers. This is our healthcare, um, you know, workers. This is every single person who wakes up and says, I want to serve Canadians. Um, that's who's being gaslit by mm. saying that Canada's broken, that we're stuck into a liberalism, wokeism. Like, what does that even mean? Who is he targeting? What, who is being, who's, who are they signaling behind those kinds of words, right? Um, and what kind, what is the impact of the damage? We saw it in London, Ontario, you know, in my writing, when a young man, 20 years old, who probably has consumed all these, you know, right-wing populism information um, and decided that, you know, his neighbors were not worthy of living because mm-hmm. they were hijabs and because they, they have a specific faith. And that's what's dangerous now about the kinds of politics that Poiliev is playing with. And I'm just concerned that we aren't all responding to it. You know, it's becoming a political uh, opposition thing. It's not. Every single Canadian should feel the responsibility to call it out because mm-hmm. it's dangerous. And and some of us who come from communities who have, you know, experienced the impact of, of those kinds of, you know, signaling, we know how difficult it can be and, and, and that we stand to lose people in that as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. look at what he's doing online right now, attacking Canadians' rights to access to information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just for clarity, for those listening, so uh, it was this morning, right, Ariel? He uh, he basically did what he did with Twitter's executive team, uh, such that he was successful in getting Twitter to uh, denote CBC as, quote, government-funded media on Twitter. Now, like, I heard that in a, in a, in a, in a story this morning. And I said, why would he even do that? Then I go on Instagram or Facebook and I see what he's trying to do. It's really silly actually, but all he's trying to do is get more emails and fundraising. No joke. And, and, And he's, and he's doing something so divisive, so violent, in fact, to undercut just, you know, decent dialogue in this country. But it's also important to note that every Canadian learns in their civic class, you know, what 
where our media comes from. And obviously, this was just an attempt to not only, you know, play politics, but to also diminish and and to insult uh, our our access to to information. And and CBC provides information to minority groups as well, such as francophones, right? So, I think we need to be careful again with the way we use our platforms, but this says a lot about who he is. You know, he actually ran to the United States to talk to billionaires, to ask them to infringe Canadian rights. That's right. So let's just put it out there in context. You know, we have someone who aspires to be the leader of this country, who runs to the United States to talk to billionaires over there to sort of mute, Canadians information that's 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 concerning for me that's concerning for Canadians me too me too yeah great I'd like to take a moment to talk about the health of the liberal party within the context of our democracy for a second and brace yourselves the question will be a bit more controversial in last year's provincial election where we saw a dismal 43 percent voter turnout there was an even worse stat less than 5% of those under 35 voted liberal. While that may be more of a provincial issue, it's also true that the federal liberals are starving for support from those under 35 as well. So do you think it's possible to recover the under 35 vote? And if so, do you think that includes the prime minister? Well, um, as a young member of parliament. (laughs) That's why why I I didn't jump in right away. That's why I didn't jump in right away. Um, You know, I I would like to proudly say that I am a member of this party uh, Mm. as a under 35 year old, and I'm not the only one. There is Mm -hmm. quite a number of us, and I'm very proud of that. But maybe to respond to how to continue to attract, you know, the young vote and the youth, um, I, I think it's going to matter how we've listened to some of the things that they've put forward. So for example, um, important to talk about the student interest loans, that was a young liberal um, initiative. Um, We have supported LGBTQ2 plus issues that matter to a lot of young people. This comes up on every, almost every single platform um, when we go into, into the convention. It's also important to talk about housing, which uh, is something that we've invested in um, significantly to make sure that young people are not only uh, able to to have access to to housing, but they're also able to start families. Um, I think investing in the childcare, which you know speaks to a lot of millennial women, you know, who are trying to decide whether they're going to have kids or not is a young uh, and youth-friendly um, policy that really uh, enhances the, their, their lives as well. Um, I mean, as a young person myself, I do know that I, I, I come with a crowd of young people, um, and I've seen it. And I've seen, you know, in my writing alone with London West, uh, the demographics has completely shifted Um from when I first, you know, um, joined the, the the writing association to where we're at now, we're we're attracting a lot of young people, and we continue to create opportunities for um, for young people to also do internships with us, like uh, through SLP programs and and just different things that we're we're doing to continue to um, retain the youth support. 
the work is there. The policies are there. Whether, you know, um, everybody knows what we're doing or not is a reality. I don't know. But I think um, what we can do through, you know, channels like doing a podcast or posting on more uh, youth-friendly platforms, um, not TikTok, um, <laughs> but <laughs> other platforms, it goes a long way. It goes a long way for people to know some of the things that the government is doing to invest in them and, and, and give them a platform. Um, I'm personally trying to recruit as many young people as possible to join me at the convention. So if you're listening today, please send me a message so we can attend the convention together, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's we're doing the work um, and maybe we can also take some informational lessons from you on how to better communicate more with the youth. But I think, I would say for me, and I think Michael as well, we're doing the best we can to really do that outreach to to the youth and to the clubs and to the social clubs at universities and, and, and different platforms that young people usually convene in. Yeah, I would just I would just add at the end, um, as MPs, um, you know, we're always looking for ways to bring people young people into uh, into the process. It could be by providing feedback on policy, bringing forward ideas, you know, maybe talking about, you know, how legislation would impact them. What are their priorities? Like there's always these things happening. But also over the last few years, um, I found it, um, you know, because of the pandemic, it's been um, challenging not only for like politics, but in the sports sectors, uh, in uh, after school pro there's so many uh, programs that have been negatively impacted uh, in regards to participation levels so we've kind of gone through that process and that's not to take away from the fact that you know the voting numbers have declined uh, but mm-hmm. um, it, um, I believe I think it was in 2015 we had one of the highest uh, voter turnouts for young people um, mm-hmm. you know uh, when the prime minister ran we saw with Obama uh, the same thing happened I think um, it does depend on our leaders and what they say and what they, you know, what they're presenting and what they're bringing forward. And, and are the ideas That's connected right. to where, you know, to, to, to who they who they are and where they're going? And uh, I have right. full confidence that the prime minister, that the Liberal Party of Canada and that candidates like Ariel uh, and so many others across this country, um, you know, will have solutions that come from uh, the you know, from young people uh, across this country that will that have always found their ways into our platforms and our budgets and uh, into law. And, you know, I have full confidence that we just need to keep working harder and uh, and Mm -hmm. keep, uh, you know, bringing people into the discussion, especially young people to uh, to make them feel that to make them know that they have a voice in the Liberal Party of Canada. And this government. Well, Michael, Ariel, thank you both again for taking the time out of your busy schedules to reconnect and discuss Canadian politics from a Black perspective. And thank you for all you do in your elected capacities to move Canada forward and the Black community forward as well, because we know it ain't easy. Well, I just want to say thank you again. No, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it's, it's been a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I want folks to know that, you know, uh, Ariel, myself, uh, the rest of the, you know, the Liberal Black Caucus, we're working uh, hard to like really just figure out, you know, what are those great ideas that people, uh, you know, want to see within government? What are the issues that, you know, are of concern? And, uh, you know, Ariel being the chair of the, the Liberal Black Caucus, we have great leadership and great support from Greg, you know, Emmanuel, Marcy, Ahmed, 
all of us just contributing to those, uh, you know, to that conversation through the voices we hear. And, you know, we hear those voices through uh, conversations like this today. So I just want to say thank you for the opportunity and thank you for continuing to, uh, to share uh, the news and information that's needed, you know, in our community. Thank you so much. Here, here. Our I, I concur with Michael and thank you again so much for uh, making us friends of the podcast and uh, for having us join you guys again. Thank you. Excellent. And we'll have a next time too. You've just listened to episode 97 of The Drip. We're releasing pods on a monthly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can also keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip T.O. You know, we love our many non-Black, non-BIPOC listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Toronto's very own Be On Location for the sounds you're hearing now. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. Thanks again to MPs Ariel Kayabaga and Michael Coteau of the Liberal Black Caucus for joining us. See y'all next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.